What we're seeing, uh, we saw actually coming over the horizon was the issue of food security. And food security speaks to one of those five deep primal fears we have of not being able to eat, not having water, not having shelter, losing our family, or losing our freedom. Those five deep fears are incredibly powerful. So we've seen a lot of disinformation around food security that is based in enough truth because we now are seeing instabilities in the global food supply chains and in the ability to move food from farm to storefront that it's become a very powerful weapon. Meet Lil Alyssa, professor and co-director of the Center for Resilient Communities at the University of Idaho. We all know fake news exists, and you've probably noticed fake news about COVID-19 zooming by on your social media feeds. Lil and a group of academics are spending part of their time searching out disinformation on COVID-19 right after it pops up. They then try and figure out whether there could be important consequences to the spread of that information. Welcome everyone to The Vandal Theory. Hello everyone, my name is Lee Cooper and I'm a science writer here at U of I and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at the University of Idaho. Throughout this special season of the podcast, which is recorded and produced in my kitchen, we're going to meet U of I researchers who have insights into the current COVID-19 pandemic and its effects on Idaho and our Vandal family. Lil and I chat about the significance of disinformation during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hey Lil, thank you so much for coming on The Vandal Theory this morning. Thanks for having me. Today, uh, we're going to talk about disinformation. And uh, to, to just start, what is your expertise in this area? And then kind of how did you get involved in the COVID-19 pandemic? I'm known as a international resilience and perception behavior system science expert. And that's kind of a fancy way of saying I study how environments shape the way people think and feel, and then take those thoughts and feelings, and then how they behave in the world. I got involved in the COVID-19 response through a group of colleagues, some of the best in the world, who study all aspects of behavior. We had a meeting about two months ago to form these groups that would look at different ways that we could help navigate what we're calling the new odd. So it's supposed to be the new normal, but we're calling it the new odd. And how we can navigate our way back to some kind of resilience and how we can get back to functioning. So before we dive in talking about disinformation, I want to draw a distinction between misinformation, starting with an M, versus disinformation, starting with a D. Uh, can you talk me through what is the difference between those two? So misinformation with the M is information that is put out there with the best of intentions, but is simply incorrect or misleading. So it could be, you know, your your great aunt who tells you that you'll be okay so long as you have your apple cider vinegar every night. Her intent is to keep you safe. It is not to harm you. I've got some of those in my family. <laughs> and I do believe <laughs> it comes from a place of love. 
<laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's more of the, they believe this to be true and it's something that might protect somebody they love. So they, they tell their family, their friends or loved ones, but the intent is not to harm. Whereas disinformation has the intention to stir the pot, to cause harm, or to otherwise rile people up into doing something that is counter to healthy and productive way to go. So disinformation is put out there by everyone from petty criminals trying to make a buck on preying on people's insecurities and fears, all the way to nation state actors putting out disinformation to destabilize entire countries. So um, is spreading disinformation illegal, maybe all the time, or maybe just some of the time? Some of the time. I mean, disinformation comes in different categories and plays differently in different situations. So disinformation put out by, say, criminals who want to make a quick buck, yes, that's illegal. Because if you are knowingly trying to defraud somebody, that is illegal. Malinformation is much more difficult to address when it's coming at the nation state level. That's a gray area for us. Is it wrong? Absolutely. If, say, China puts out information that is disinformation and malinformation, and we know it is that, and we can prove that it is, what do we do about it? Well, we can call them out. So we've had Secretary of State Mike Pompeo call out China on their disinformation and malinformation. But the consequences in terms of the law are much more difficult to uh, apply. Criminal disinformation is something that local police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation are really cracking down on. Early in the pandemic, there was a lot of disinformation as you know, on, on fake cures. And in some cases, that became very predatory. So preying on the elderly or individuals who were immunocompromised. And in some cases, it could wipe them out financially as they desperately tried to invest in these cures. That is absolutely illegal. So buy the snake oil and you'll be fine, but it's snake oil. Right. Nothing has been proven yet on absolutely. the cure vaccine front. Right. So let's talk about why disinformation is so dangerous. Yeah, the, the primary purpose of disinformation outside of the predatory criminal, hey, buy the snake oil aspects is to break down trust. And the goal of breaking down trust is to accomplish, you know, one of many things. For example, it could be to simply cause chaos. There is a sense of power and malice in causing chaos, in confusing people, in causing disarray that enables other behaviors to emerge. For example, fringe groups to advance agendas. They are not the majority. They are the minority. Quite often, they're an outspoken minority, and they appeal to other parts of the population that otherwise feel socially constrained to express these views Disinformation is a way to kind of put a wedge in those normative behaviors, crack them open and say, it's okay 
to express these generally socially unpalatable views. That's probably one of the more concerning aspects of disinformation is the breakdown of trust. So in communities, for example, ours or in cities, it means that you trust your neighbors or your authority figures or the police less. So some of the disinformation out there that we're seeing that's breaking down society has to do with the request, for example, to wear masks. Wearing a mask has become a sign of respect for your neighbors. That's, that's all it is. I am wearing a mask because I respect you guys enough to protect you from whatever it is that I may be carrying and not know. Well, thank you. you. Yeah, well, yeah. And so not wearing a mask has become a sign of disrespect, but that's creating a rift right now. And we've seen some very tragic, very tragic consequences because of disinformation that wearing a mask is the government's way of moving toward, for example, martial law. There's that connection between wearing a mask and it's okay to have martial law. And you know as well as I do that that has resulted... I have seen that one. I've seen articles about, like, they're thinking about starting martial law in, you know, this state or that state. Exactly. That's where disinformation, you know, that's where it achieves some malicious goals. Well, let's kind of dive into what you guys, your your team, I guess, uh, is, is working on. You guys started, I think, kind of trying to track disinformation uh, and and I think you're you're not focusing so much on that anymore, correct? That's correct. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> what did you find? <laughs> so delving into the chasing disinformation was the equivalent of chasing air. It is everywhere. It is pervasive, and it is essentially a part of the human psyche and human behavior. When it becomes weaponized is where we start getting concerned. So if we chase all the disinformation, uh, we will endlessly be chasing our tails. And to be frank, I, that's what the adversary and those adversaries right now have to do with nation states that would like to see us less resilient. They would love us to do that. They would love us to be chasing our tails forever. But what we've moved to is looking at effects where does this information become so weaponized that it has effects that we do need to be concerned about? So we've moved more from trying to you know, understand all of disinformation to mapping where the effects of disinformation rise to a level that we need to mitigate them or counter them. And that's really an exciting uh, new area of science that has come out of this group. So uh, can you give me an example of one that you've kind of seen? Sure. So what we're seeing, uh, we saw actually coming over the horizon, was the issue of food security. And food security speaks to one of those five deep primal fears we have of not being able to eat, not having water, not having shelter, losing our family, or losing our freedom. Those five deep fears are incredibly powerful. So we've seen a lot of disinformation around food security that is based in enough truth 
because we now are seeing instabilities in the global food supply chains and in the ability to move food from farm to storefront that it's become a very powerful weapon. Can you can you give an example? I think there was some uh, uh, a milk one running around about a month ago. Yeah, so it started it did start with the uh with the milk good memory by the way. It had to do with farmers in Ontario, which is a province in Canada, dumping milk. And then quietly it started moving into social media that we were going to run out of milk. And for a while there there was a run on milk and then it spread out as the workers in uh, processing plants became ill, the meat shortages, and then it spread out from there into global famine, and then it spread out from there into this massive destabilization of the Earth's social ecological systems leading to World War III, essentially. It actually even hit me because I have, I have children. Yeah. To be clear, World War III is not on the horizon, just, just to make sure that our listeners know that. <laughs> that is correct. Yeah. World War III is not on the horizon. Just wanted to, to distinguish between the real and the disinformation. But sorry, yes, it, the milk hit you uh, with your children. Right. And so this, this was sort of a, an example of how it started with a grain of truth. In with milk. And that actually upset me because I have children and they drink milk. They drink a lot of milk. And that's such a fundamental part of their diet. I leapt forward to, oh my gosh, I won't be able to get my children milk. And it hit me so hard, even though I knew that what was coming through in the feeds was disinformation it really hit me at a much deeper emotional level of fear than even I was prepared for. So it, it gave me new insight into how this would hit somebody who was not able to disaggregate truth from lie. Well, it's like our lizard brain jumps in to the fray. Like immediately we read something like that and it's like, oh, okay, what do I need to survive? survival exactly. brain kicks in and you got to almost fight it back. I say this looking at my pantry, which is uh, not bulging with extra goods, but you know, it's full. <laughs> uh, you know, you get caught up. <laughs> well, and, and we, we are designed to be that way, right? It's, it's a rare person who is designed to not respond to those five fears. It's a rare person who says, oh, I don't care if I can't breathe or I don't care if I can't have water for the next you know, two weeks. And that's where the malinformation, that really sinister part of disinformation becomes a weapon. And so it's that kind of disinformation that we're trying to understand what are the effects, who is affected, where are they, and what might they do as a consequence of listening to the lizard brain, as, as I did with the milk. Now, you had said earlier that you were mapping uh, what's going on. And in fact, you are literally mapping where these are popping up. So can you talk about um, what your team is putting together? Absolutely. And we are mapping and we're doing it in the food system because that is one of those core 
areas that we really, really are concerned about the effects. What we've done is we've taken disinformation about food systems. And this is this is food production, this is food safety, food supply chains, distribution, access. So can you buy food? Can you not buy food? Can the food that you need move to you? And we've taken that disinformation and we've coupled it with tracking the actual dynamics of different kinds of food production, so proteins, cereal grains, and then fresh produce, so that's fruits and vegetables. And we've we've mapped where there are actual or real physical system vulnerabilities. And then what we're doing is we're taking disinformation and we're seeing if it's targeting those vulnerable areas or if it's targeting areas that are not vulnerable so that we can come in and say to those areas, those regions, and say, hang on, look, here are the numbers. You're okay. In the vulnerable areas, what we can do is we can intervene and we can shore up the vulnerabilities because we're identifying them. We know what they are. And that's half the battle. By knowing what they are, we can jump in and we can say, okay, we know this is going to be a problem. And if we have disinformation with malintent combined with this, then this is going to result in social instability, or it could result in a true lack of access to food by individuals in the area. Now, on top of that, imagine this. We are due for a fairly rough hurricane season this year. We're shifting into that, yeah. yeah, we're shifting into this potentially catastrophic hurricane season. Then the mapping of the effects of disinformation with malintent, food system vulnerabilities, and areas that are in the path of these natural disasters is no longer a scientific endeavor. It's a national security endeavor. Out of curiosity, are you seeing any patterns now that you've got this uh, mapped out? So the patterns we're seeing are in some ways troubling. So we're seeing some food system instabilities or vulnerabilities in parts of the United States that are likely to be hit by a major hurricane. So this includes parts of Texas, the American Southeast, and Florida. These effects are going to be profound if we have a combination of what we're seeing on the horizon with the food supply chain instability and a hurricane happening. So imagine 9,000 people crammed into a Superdome sheltering from a hurricane during the time of the year when we should be moving food around the country. In the Midwest, we're also seeing some vulnerabilities with respect to supply chains because these are areas we anticipate to become hotspots for infection. So the question is, who's going to be able to harvest the food and then move it out? Now, the good news in this is we're good. We're, we're looking really good in the cereal grains category. And this introduces something the U.S. should put in its arsenal is that the world will face a rough winter for food. The U.S. could engage in something called grain diplomacy. Grain is the most fundamental food on earth. 
And we are in a position, despite this pandemic, despite this dark time, to be able to be that beacon of hope by exporting grain to the regions of the world that need it the most. That grain diplomacy is powerful in building allies, in restoring our place as the bastion of freedom, democracy, and goodwill, and also in alleviating suffering that might come from famine. And just so our listeners know, uh, they'll be able to find this website link in our show notes if they want to go visit. Uh, Lil, who do you think the map's going to be most helpful for? Are we talking people in the state governance level? Primarily, yeah. And so the people who will be able to use this map are the producers themselves, so the private sector, state governments, so that they can make decisions within their own states, and then also response agencies such as DHS. So that includes CISA, FEMA, a lot of the response agencies, as well as USDA, who can help mitigate some of the potential vulnerabilities that we already see coming on the horizon. All right. So last question. How do I, as like, you know, normal Joe, how do I make sure that I'm not spreading disinformation? That's, that's a very good question, a very tough one. So lately, some guidelines have come out by different agencies, and they're easy to say and they're hard to do. But there are three fundamental easy ways that I use to make sure that disinformation doesn't spread. Number one, look at the source. Go deep into that source. Ensure that that source is authoritative. Number two is make sure that the facts in there have truths that can all be correlated. The power of disinformation is that there are kernels of truth. And so you can take anywhere from 10 to 30% of disinformation and say, well, that's true. And then by then you're forgetting that 70 to 90% of the rest of it cannot be correlated, or it's just somebody's opinion that they've embedded in that tiny grain of truth. And the third one, that's the most simple one, if you are not sure, do not forward it. Or better yet, go ask somebody who you know to be an authoritative source. This is where you want to lean on the universities. Uh, the authorities in your town, if you hear something about something happening, for example, in your region, go to the town town council, go to the chief of police, go to the individuals who should be in the know. All right, I'll check my sources. Well, Lil, thank you so much for talking with me today and bringing me up to speed on disinformation. Well, thanks for having me, Leah. Really, really appreciate it. It's been fun to talk to you. If you found learning about University of Idaho's work on identifying disinformation interesting, I think you'll like hearing about a few other U of I research projects. Our entrepreneurial team, Catheter X, has designed an innovative urinary catheter that should prevent infections, save lives, and reduce hospital costs. College of Business and Economics and College of Engineering students have boosted their seed money for the testing and patent process winning a total of $16,000 for their business plan during various competitions. The University of Idaho is working to identify a cure for coronaviruses, including COVID-19. The Department of Biological Sciences team expects to finish preliminary tests within a year. The researchers will also develop a pipeline for identifying drugs that block viruses from infecting human cells. 
John Abatsoglu from the Department of Geography, and his colleagues looked at how snowmelt affects food production and how changes in snowmelt may threaten production in irrigated areas. The team found that the farming regions most at risk for changing snowmelt patterns were in Central Asia, Western Russia, the Southern Andes, and the Western United States. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. If you want to learn more about Lil's work, I hope you'll visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory. There, you can also read our show notes and email me with comments. And as always, we'd love it if you would subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. You can help people find The Vandal Theory by leaving a rating or review while you're there. We really appreciate all the support and hope you're enjoying the stories. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.